welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. that you guys are here. We have a welcome desk in the back that we'd love for you guys to stop by after our um, time here together and our gathering. Just love to get to know you guys. Um, we've been sitting in the book of John, um, and as Joy was reading, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 is where we will be tonight. <clears throat> and last week, if you remember, Alex, he was preaching on Jesus being the true vine, and us as believers, we are attached to him as the branches. And as branches attached to the vine, we are called to bear fruit, and bear fruit for the glory of God. And in the context of John 15, verses 12 through 17, where we will be tonight, it's a continuation of that conversation. And it's sitting in this um, section of John's gospel known as the Upper Room Discourse. And this is Jesus um, giving his last bit of teaching and and bearing his heart with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Um, And so it's a very intimate moment in John's gospel, and that's where we're going to be tonight, and the title of the sermon is Friendship with God, um, and if, once again, if, if there's anyone here that's a visitor, you've never encountered Christianity, you've never encountered Jesus, you hear the words friendship with God, and that just sounds strange and astounding, and it is mysterious and wonderful, and we are going to unpack that a little bit, um, so yeah, John chapter uh, 15, verses 12 through 17, and the main overarching point, if you're taking notes, or just, you know, want something to think about in the back of your head that really wants you guys to really just meditate on as we go through this text tonight is that love for one another is a result of Christ's love for us. That love for one another is ultimately, at the end of the day, a result, a fruit, to go along with that language, of Christ's love for us. And I wanted to start off by kind of illustrating this a little bit. There was a story that I was reading one time. There was a, a British pastor named Robert Chapman. And he was well known in, uh, in Britain for his, the love that he exemplified for believers, the kind of love that Christ calls us to in every circumstance. And in Pastor Chapman's own context, he had to put a man under church discipline, and that man was eventually excluded from church fellowship. And the man under discipline declared that he would never again, as a result of that, out of his anger, out of his heart and heart, he would never again have anything to do with Chapman. Under no circumstance would he even talk with the guy. And interestingly enough, um, even though (laughs) one day they actually found themselves walking towards one another in the same street. Who's maybe been in the same situation? You know, you've got beef with somebody, you're having conflict, and you're like, I don't ever want to see that person ever again. And then you're out and you guys both decide you want to get the same thing for lunch. And you're like, now I have to stand in line with them. This is the worst. Um, But they cross cross paths on the same street. And And Chapman, it's interesting Pastor Chapman, despite knowing all that the other man had said about him, slandered about him, feelings about him, when he encounters the other man, he puts his arms around him and said, Dear brother, God loves you, Christ loves you, and I love you. And the story goes on that this simple loving action caused the man to break down and lose his hatred and lead him to repentance and being restored in the church. Is really interesting. Um, why share this story? <laughs> well, friends, 
as we, see, we will see in this passage, your love for one another, especially believers in the context of this passage, your love for one another is only as deep as your grasp of Christ's love for you. In other words, the deeper your grasp and the reveling in of, of, uh, of the love that God has shown you through Christ's life and his death and his resurrection on your behalf, the deeper your grasp and apprehension of those realities, the deeper and more expressive your love for others will be. It's, it's an interesting dynamic that you see in Scripture. And that's what I believe that is being most conveyed in our text this evening, in that the Christian life, as is ex- it's expressed towards others and in submission to God, it's ultimately summed up in the fact that we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And that's actually a Bible verse, 1 John four nineteen. It's an amazing verse. And that's actually going to be our first point for tonight. Point number one, if you're taking notes, we love because he first loved us. And that comes out of verses 12 through 13, if you want to read with me. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so as we unpack and dive into this text, let's, let's just notice a few points right off the bat about what Jesus is, is getting right out of the gate. In verse 12, we see that Jesus, he's giving a command or an imperative to love one another. And just to get technical with you, the conjunctive word there, as, like, or just as, depending on what translation you have, is actually key here, despite it seeming small at first glance. Reason being, it's actually the controlling mood for what Jesus is, is commanding of them. It's the indicative or the promise that Jesus gives actually precedes the command. And where does Jesus say that his command is grounded in? Verse 13. His love for the disciples. In other words, he, he foreshadows the love that he will most preeminently display in verse 13. And in that verse, the greater love that's being referenced there by Christ it's actually explained by the verse itself in the latter half, right? Namely, that the greatest form of love is displayed in laying down your life for your friends. And, you know, there's a lot that we could unpack here. Um, but let's just jot down some key points. The first amazing reality that we need to take note of is that in the indicative of Jesus calling the disciples his friends, it precedes or is the grounding of Jesus laying down his life for them. Why does that matter? Well, think about the progression of the command. What follows is the progression to the command to love as he has. So to put it another way, it's because, it's because that the disciples are loved by Jesus as his friends that he is laying down his life for them. Are you tracking with me? Because Jesus has already decided to set his love upon his disciples, irrespective of anything they've done for him, and he is calling them in terms of identity his friends, as a result of that, he's laying down his life for them. And then as a result of his love for them, they are then to go and love other Christians. To give you a biblical biblical example of how this sort of thought flow is working, to stay in John's gospel, think of a famous verse like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What do we see there is the controlling mood, the controlling reason for why God sent his son to die? Because God loved the world, right? That's why God sent his son, because God loved the world. He loved his people. 
so that anyone who believes in the Son and in his sacrifice and trusts in it, they have eternal life. So once again, what God has done for us is first founded upon his love for his people. Thus, love is meant to be the controlling factor for any actions that follow it. So what kind of love, though? <laughs> once again, to get technical, what kind of love? The Greek word that's being used here is agapao, and it carries forth the idea of loving deeply and actually being well-pleased with the person that you are loving, being well-pleased with. And this is fitting because Jesus says that the greatest love is to die for your friends, where the original text of the passage with friends there is actually connoting a, a companion that you are pleased to be closely associated with. I mean, think about that for a second. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are someone that he is actually pleased and proud to be closely associated with. He's not ashamed of, to call you his brother or his sister. This is what Hebrews gets at. He is actually proud and pleased to say that you are his friend, that you are his companion, right? And this is just is an astounding, unspeakable kind of love. What kind of love is it? It's the kind of love that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where he says that God shows, that he demonstrates, that he evidences, that he displays his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we would have been the people in the crowd joining with the Jews and the Romans saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, he's dying for us. Guys, God's love is most preeminently displayed in the atoning death of Jesus Christ for sinners who do not in any way deserve to be forgiven or reconciled to him. And that is, it's on the basis of that love that we are called to then go forth and love others. And so in the immediate context, the one another most specifically seen is in loving other Christians, those for whom Christ died. Make no mistake, though, this definitely applies to others as a result because Christ showed deep-rooted love for all who came to him. And there are the same people, it's interesting, the same people that Jesus healed were the same ones that were shouting, crucify him. And, and friends, one of the ways that you evidence and demonstrate God's, or your love for God, is the love that you actually show believers. This is part of Jesus' point. Love for one another is the principal command from Christ and how you two are, are to relate to other Christians since love your neighbor as yourself is the second of the most core command in God's law. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 through 40 in a conversation with one of the scribes that, that all the law and the prophets are summed up in love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that is... That is the way that you are you showing love for believers as a result of God's love for you. You are fulfilling that second command. And, and the apostle John, he, who authored the gospel of John, he actually writes in his first letter to Christians, he says this in 1 John chapter 4, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and, and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love, here it is, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his, 
He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John's point is this. If our salvation identity is grounded in God's love for us through the gospel, then our love for other Christians is grounded in that reality. Not our wayward feelings about that person. Not whether we get butterflies when we see them. Not how acceptable they are. Not how worthy they may be in our our eyes. No, our love for that person is grounded in an objective reality outside of us, namely the love that God has for them. And if God loves them, that means we are to love them, right? Friends, the reality is is it can't be based on whether we were (laughs) or that person is acceptable or, or worthy to us because we were unworthy and acceptable to Christ, right? There was nothing lovely, beautiful, or enticing about us as sinners in ourselves to make us somehow deserving of such love that Christ had for us and continues to have for us. And yet he did so, why? Because the people of God for whom Christ died are his bride. He, he considers us as his, as his church, as believers, his bride. Therefore, how could we not love each other when we recognize that if anyone is a Christian, whether poor, rich, weak, strong, whatever ethnicity, they are the ones for whom God bled and gave his precious life for. And that's the grounding of our love for that person To be straight up, guys, as a Christian, to hate the one whom Jesus died for is honestly blasphemous and unchristlike, and actually counterintuitive because you are both spiritually united to the Lord Jesus and by extension the New Testament would say that if you've been united to Christ, you are spiritually united to other believers and you guys are part of the same body. And so to hate another believer is actually tantamount to hating yourself. You catch that? And also, functionally, you're hating Christ for whom, that, for whom he gave his life for that person. You tracking with me? But how should we love one another, right? It sounds, it sounds simple, and yet it's hard to put to practice, right? <laughs> we, see the, we see it on, pa- on paper, and we're like, oh, yeah, no, we'll get after it. No, it's, it's hard, <laughs> Right? We must first recognize, though, as a first step, we must first recognize that as believers, we are all one in Christ Jesus on the basis of Christ's work in our place. This is part of what Paul gets at in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And so once we recognize that, we are actually freed up to love and live in light of those realities. And in that same letter, to go back to Galatians, Paul reveals to us the fruit of the Spirit in chapter 5, right? But to go back a little bit, in our context, in our text, remember... John 15, as Alex talked about last week, Jesus is the vine, and we are to bear fruit as branches who are attached to him as the true vine. So what is the fruit that we bear as we seek to love one another? Well, think of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And Our love for one another, that's an outflow of the fruit of the Spirit, showing love to one another. This is all grounded in the gospel, friends. And it sounds, I remember for a while that it sounds confusing at first because you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and you think, you know, the gospel is what got me in, got me in through the front door. And, you know, now now the real work begins and I keep myself in the house, you know. (laughs) Well, friends, the gospel is what actually keeps you moving about through the house. 
In other words, the gospel not just, it doesn't just provide forgiveness and justification and reconciliation with God. The gospel actually empowers and motivates your love for other people, right? Think about it this way. In a variety, there's a variety of different ways that could show itself. Think of, think of the fruit of the Spirit, what we just listed out. Think of this list. Joy. How does, that, how does the gospel inform something like that? Well, we exhibit joy in suffering, and we celebrate God's work in other people's lives knowing this, that the joy we have of having the Spirit gifted to us through Christ's work in our place. Peace. We live peace, peaceably and peacefully with each other, not exhibiting irritability or irritation or division, actually assuming unity since we have been made at peace with God through Christ, or, or patience. Right? We display patience towards one another, even when wronged, since we know that God displayed and continues to display patience towards us, despite our sin. Why? Because Jesus paid it all on the cross. Or, or kindness, right? Kindness, uh, seeking the best for one another. Since, since Christ sought what was best for us, what is that? Namely, reconciliation with God. The kindness of Christ in that regard. And he secured our benefit of salvation by his blood and gifted us his righteousness. And so what did he do in that moment? He exuded goodness toward us in that moment. And so we also strive to be faithful. Another fruit of the Spirit. We strive to be faithful in our relationships and in life circumstances. Why? Because Jesus was and is faithful as our sacrificial lamb and currently as our merciful high priest who intercedes for us despite our faithlessness towards him. Or you think of, say, something like gentleness, meekness, tenderness, understanding that actually, you know, the lowliness and humility and service towards others, friends, that's not actually weakness, but actually it's strength since Christ was lowly and humble and served by living a perfect life and dying an excruciating death so that his perfect obedience and his sinless record would be counted to us before God by us placing our faith in him. And lastly, you think of something like self-control. Friends, we fight for self-control in our lusts and our passions and our desires and our anger and any sort of sinful outbursts that would occur in order why. So we can, you know, keep up our performance scorecard? No. In order that others may be built up and encouraged and protected. Since Jesus brings us life and right relationships with God and he didn't display any sort of sinful lust or anger or passion. Right? In other words, the gospel grounds and motivates us to love and reconcile relationships with others since Jesus loved us by reconciling us to God. So Jesus provides the model and the example and the motivation and the gospel to then replicate that to others in an albeit imperfect way, right? But we're still striving. And that leads us to our second point, friends, that Jesus is the friend of sinners, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says to the disciples, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have, I have heard from my father, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friends, as we observe and look at verse 14, we can see that Jesus, what does he do? He's given another command. But 
if we're paying attention to, the, once again, the, the flow of this passage, we see that this command is based on verse 12 in terms of its, the argumentation. So we see Jesus, he's saying, if there, and it's implying an action, but also a possibility of not performing this stated action. But what is that action? Obedience. Doing what Christ commands. There is a key in our understanding of this, though, that begs a question. Because if you take, if you take verse 14 by itself, out of its context, you know, you make it your life verse or something like that, and you just <laughs> irrespectively just dismantle it from any sort of context in this passage, um, it gets confusing because then maybe you're saying to yourself, okay, well, is Jesus then saying our obedience is what makes us his friends? Is, is my relationship with Jesus established by my doing of his commands? And yeah, it, it may appear so at first glance and if you isolate it from everything else in the passage. But what I would suggest to you guys is that our obedience to Christ is merely a display of our relationship to him, not an establishment of it. And that's huge. Because if you mix that up, you can basically kick any sort of assurance out the door. Right? Because now God is just a taskmaster that's basically just waiting for you to screw up at some point enough and then he's going to kick you out. He's going to tear up the adoption papers. So it may appear so at first, but friends, I would, I would suggest that that's not the case. There's a few reasons for that garnered from this text and, and others. First, once again, if we're looking at the passage, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus commands them, think obedience, he commands them to love one another as he has loved them. And he's directly alluding to the love that's being displayed in his eventual death for them on the cross. And Jesus, this is the kicker, Jesus laid down his life for his friends. Friends is the identity marker that he's giving them. Do you catch that? Jesus already is counting them and establishing them as his friends on the basis that he has loved them and was going to die for them. So lest we think that our friendship or our relationship with Jesus is established and constituted by our own obedience, ask yourself, what brings someone into salvation and a relationship with Christ? Hopefully, in your own head, your answer is believing in Jesus as the Son of God, who is the only hope for the salvation of any sort of sinner. The disciples, they, caught, they, they displayed this, actually. The disciples, they displayed the faith they had in Christ that brought forth their relationship and friendship with him earlier, actually, in John's gospel. If you remember in John chapter 6, verse 69, Peter, representative of the disciples, says, we have believed, they're talking to Christ, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Why is that significant? Well, that's because this is at least a year, chronologically speaking, before Jesus' upper room discourse, the passage we're in. So, God-given faith establishes a relationship and friendship with Jesus. That is, and what is this relationship and friendship ultimately built, built off of at the end of the day? Jesus' perfect life and obedience to God's commands and his sacrificial death that atones for the sin of any who believe in him. That's the basis. That's the rock that you stand on. That is what your friendship and relationship with Jesus is ultimately founded upon at the end of the day. So, What's Jesus' point here then? It's kind of what we've already talked about. 
we display and demonstrate our relationship with Christ through obedience. And in this passage's immediate context, what's the obedience he has in mind? Love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Right? The grace of God, and I really just want us to focus in on this. The grace of God doesn't just leave you to yourself, guys. It doesn't. It actually empowers and emboldens action, right? It emboldens action. Listen to Paul cement this concept in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It's a glorious passage in this respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, we got that. All right, passage is over. Now we can, no. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And I love this part. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you hear that connection? The same grace of God that brought salvation is the same grace of God that brings godliness. The same grace of God that brought about salvation is the same grace of God that brings godliness. Think of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Hopefully you're here when, on Sunday when John preached on it. Romans 1, 16 says, it is the power of God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And I think it's really, it's very common, um, at least functionally, maybe not on paper, but on functionally to think about that salvation is merely forgiveness of sins. That salvation is merely, in terms of it being a blanket term, is merely just us being justified before God. But scripture would actually say that salvation is justification, sanctification, us being transformed into the image of Christ, and actually glorification that comes. When Christ comes back and we are physically and, and eternally transformed into his likeness. Why do I say that? Because what did Paul say in Romans 1.16? He said it is the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. That means it is the gospel for forgiveness of sins. It is the gospel for transformation as well. Once again, the, the greater your apprehension of God's love for you in the gospel, the greater that motivates your love and faith, which also then in turn motivates your obedience. Are you tracking with me? It's key. Not convinced yet? <laughs> Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Right. So we have the indicative, the grounding piece there. But then here's the command. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we seek to imitate God in his character, walking in Christ in his love, since we are his beloved children. But what made us his beloved children? The love of Christ for us as he offered himself up to God as a sacrifice in our place. Friends, know this key principle whenever you are reading or studying the Bible. The indicative always comes before the imperative. The promise always influences any precept. The law is distinguished from the gospel. Identity influences action. Belief dictates your behavior. It's a relationship that we see in scripture. Friends, we display we are friends of Jesus when we obey Jesus. But the key word there is display. It's display. It's merely evidence. The reason why I say that is because we sin every day, friends, whether thought, word, or deed. If you don't believe it, I dare you to examine yourself. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because, once again, our lackluster obedience is not what established or constituted or even keeps our relationship with the Lord. 
but it's merely a display of the love that Christ has for us that we are then seeking to show. And that actually includes the obedience of repentance, right? I think we often forget that repentance is actually obedience as well. When we're not obeying the way we should. Think of 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 going into 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, John says, If anyone thinks he's without sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. He says, And if anyone does sin, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's actually writing this to Christians. Yes, the gospel's for Christians too. <laughs> and, he act- and then he goes on and he says in 1 John 2, and if anyone do- I write this to you that no one would sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. In this case then, friend, guys, we need to think about the fact that Jesus is the friend of sinners. That disciples, they, they have been saved, but they're still sinners, right? And modern day believers, we're in the same boat, right? Jesus' friendship with sinners, it's interesting. If you, if you survey the, the landscape of the Gospels, Jesus' friendship with, with sinners is consistently despised by who? The legalistic, outwardly clean, but inwardly dead Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day. And it's interesting, Jesus actually acknowledges their mockery. When in, in Matthew 11, you know, he's, he's talking to the crowd and he says, you know, they say the Son of Man, he, he came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a drunkard and, and a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified in her deeds. So Jesus doesn't actually deny that he is a friend of the tax collectors and the sinners. They thought they were mocking him and ruining his reputation, but he's actually, no, that actually cements my reputation. That's why I came. Why would he say then that wisdom is justified by her deeds? Well, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And the Gospels record that it was tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, the ones who knew that they needed help in salvation, the ones that feared their their eternal destiny since they knew they sinned against God. The ones who with fear and trembling approached Jesus since he was the only one who could cleanse them. Those were the ones who flocked to him in droves. Friends, to flip it on its head a little bit, we need to be clear that Jesus is not a friend in any way, shape, or form to those who think they have it all together, that don't need salvation, forgiveness, mercy, or him. He is not your friend, if you genuinely think that. Jesus is only a friend to those who know that sin is cancerous and that he's the only cure. Jesus said in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And when is actually (laughs) being a sinner surprisingly comforting? which I know sounds like an oxymoron. It's comforting when you realize that being a sinner is the very thing that qualifies you to be on the receiving end of God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness, not the thing that disqualifies you. If you would trust that he's the one that can give it. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul, former murderer of Christians, he famously wrote, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm as bad as it gets, and if I'm saved, you know, you're probably okay (laughs) if you're a believer as well, right? As theologian J.C. Ryle once remarked, for sinful men and women like ourselves to be called friends of Christ is something that our weak, finite minds can hardly grasp and take in. The King of kings and the Lord of lords not only pities and saves all those who believe in him, but as he goes on, he actually calls them his friends. Friends, what comfort and peace, right? This is a comfort and peace that's cemented by the fact that though we as Christians are servants of Christ, Christ no longer considers or regards identities merely as servants, but actually that of his friends. Friends, reason being, as friends, he has made known to us the riches of knowing God. And the gospel, it reveals Christ who in turn reveals God. Mark it, friends. Friendship with God is built on knowledge of God. And this occurs through the Spirit of God calling us to believe the Word of God. And Jesus is the one that brought all these things about. And, and it's interesting because Jesus in Matthew 11 says this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And this always gets people. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that actually leads us into our final point tonight from this text. Point number three, we are not saved by good works, but for good works. We're not saved by good works, but for good works. And we get this from verses 16 and 17. Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. People look at verse 16 and, you know, that can, can often spark confusion and grief or peace and relief. It depends on who you are and how you're reading it. As we encounter this closing section of the text, though, I think it's important to note some things about this passage if we're to be faithful to God's word. First, we see that Jesus says, contrary to any possible thoughts of pride in our own hearts or in the disciples' own hearts, they did not choose Jesus. He chose them. We can do all sorts of, you know, interpretive hopscotch if we want, but that's what he says. And the word choose here, ekligomai, is meant to communicate someone choosing someone else for themselves. It's belonging type of language. They belong to me. That's why I chose them. In other words, the disciples, they belong to Jesus because Jesus chose for them to. <laughs> to go back to John 6, 69, which we quoted earlier, remember how G- uh, Peter, he confesses belief in Christ and he states Jesus' identity. It's interesting, Jesus then goes on to say in the very next verse, did I not choose you, the twelve? And in a similar passage in Matthew 16, 15, Peter similarly confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, with Jesus then saying of Peter, you know, nice job, Peter, really happy for you. 
No, he says, blessed are you, son of Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, he wouldn't have confessed Christ if the Father didn't reveal him to do so. As we can see, Jesus is making something abundantly clear that rubs up against any sort of um, feathers of pride of the human heart. That God is the one who is sovereign over salvation, not as us. And I was thinking through this passage with, with Alex this week, and Alex was like, you know, he's like, you should just quote some, some, something from our statement of faith, the New Hampshire Confession. I was like, are you sure? He's like, he's like yeah, I won't be there, so you can do it. <laughs> so then I take the blame for it. Yeah, I, I, was talking about, I was talking about this with him, too, on a side note. I was like, dude, I was like, why is it when I'm preaching, John, I always deal with the election passages? <laughs> I was like, this happened back in October, too. Um, as the statement of faith that our pastors and elders at this church subscribe to, listen to this. It's powerful. We believe that election, or God's choosing, is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. And that this being perfectly consistent with the free agency of man, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. That it is a most glorious, I love this, a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness. God being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. That this, this salvation utterly excludes boasting and it promotes humility and love and prayer and praise and trust in God in an active imitation of his free mercy. And then I love it goes down at the bottom of the paragraph and it says that this is the foundation of Christian assurance. That God would set his love upon you before you would ever set your love upon him. In other words, we are saved by grace through faith alone because of Christ alone. Christ's sovereign decree as well as his victorious work. Both of those things. To point to another, you know, that sermon that I was given back in October, right? Maybe some of you remember. Jesus in John 6, what does he say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But right, remember, that's not all, right? In er earlier in verses 39 through 40, he says, this is the will of him who sent me. Right? That I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So what do we conclude? People only come to Jesus if the Father draws them as a gift from the Father to the Son. And the result of that drawing is belief in eternal life. But how do we understand the logic of that passage, though? If you truly believe in Jesus, it's actually specifically and precisely because the Father drew you personally to his Son. And so, if you're a visitor here, thanks for coming <laughs> for such a, you know, a passage as this. If you've never heard these truths before, though, please don't, don't leave without seeing me or someone at the welcome desk and, and asking about who Jesus is. What is the Bible? What is the gospel? Understand this, though, that salvation, what Christianity teaches is that salvation is purely by the unvarnished, unfiltered grace of God. And so to go back to our passage, Jesus says the appointment to bear fruit, what is it? It's tied to us first and foremost being attached to Jesus as the a true vine. We can't forget that. That once again, Jesus says in John 15, what Alex preached on last week, that apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing apart from me. And so we can only bear fruit insofar as us as branches are attached to the vine. 
And so the fruit remaining in verse 17, it's most likely pointing to the fact that because, and this is, you know, can get confusing, so try to track with me here. The fruit that's remaining or abiding as Jesus is talking about, it's pointing to the fact that because salvation is eternal, the work of salvation, the fruit from it also is. To put it, different, put it differently, sharing the gospel is to share in the work of, of salvation. And bearing fruit that shares in the work of the gospel is actually, this is amazing, fruit that will last forever in the eyes of God and echoes into eternity. And so for the apostles, the apostles, those who are in the immediate um, recipients of what Jesus is saying, the fruit that remained is actually all of us in this room right now. Think about that for a second. If the apostles never went and they never shared the gospel with a single soul, the ancient world wouldn't have turned upside down and we actually wouldn't be here. So the fruit that remained for the apostles in that immediate moment is the reverberation of Christianity through the annals of history and here we are <laughs> in the 21st century. What about for us modern believers, though? It then, it still reminds us, though, what we do for God has eternal significance, right? What we do for God has eternal significance. And so we pray for God's will to be done in Jesus' name, as verse 16 points out. And friends, just as a side note, if you want a principle for praying God's will, mark it down. I would encourage you to meditate on something like Psalm 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you're like, oh, this is great. So if I'm just, you know, doing really good with the Lord, he'll just give me whatever I want. No, <laughs> that's not what that's getting at. What that's getting at is that if you delight yourself in the Lord, paradoxically but genuinely biblically, his desires will slowly but surely transform your desires. And they will actually become your desires. And so when you are praying to the Lord and you're making prayers and supplication requests, it will actually reflect God's will, not your own. And friends, the ultimate desire, hear me on this, the Lord's ultimate desire is that his glory would be magnified through the salvation of sinners by Jesus Christ and that this grace would be glorious to us, that we would delight in the glory of God that he is displaying in salvation. Friends, that's, those are earth-shattering realities if we really let it rest deeply in our heart and soul. To close up, when there was a well-known Puritan named Thomas Hooker who was dying, he was a pastor, mourners gathered around his bedside, and one stood weeping and said, oh, brother, you're off to, you're off to uh, receive the reward of all your labors. And he's just praying for him, and he's weeping, uh, weeping for him. And then Hooker looks at him and says, brother, I'm off to receive more mercy. What he's getting at is, you know, any sort of work I ever did, it was merely the grace of God that empowered me to do so. And it's going to be the grace of God that carries me into eternity as I die here soon. Friends, what is Jesus' point to us as Christians as we close out? You were not saved to sit around and contemplate your Christian navel and be lazy. <laughs> you, were, you were saved to actually bring glory to God by bearing fruit. This is precisely Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. What does he say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Friends, we are new creations in Jesus Christ for good works. There is actually a purpose beyond simply yourself for why you have been saved if you are a Christian. Think about that. There's a greater purpose, you know, so to channel the spirit of Thomas Hooker a little bit. There's no amount of labors or works that could ever save you because God is the one who ordained those works for you in the first place. So how are you going to boast in works that God prepared for you to do beforehand? No. Your whole life is one of mercy. Mercy. And this mercy is meant to lead you to do good works for those around you for the glory of God. But someone will say, why, you know, why produce fruit if I'm saved anyways? Who cares? You know, I'm saved by grace, right? Um, my response would be the same as Martin Luther's. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Is that not true throughout history? I mean, think about all the Christians that built hospitals and orphanages and food banks and all these different things, all for the glory of God, so they could display God's kindness to those around him. I mean, this is the heart behind, I promise I'll close with this, this is the heart behind what Peter gets at in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. He says, you know, going in three, three, verses 3 through 5, he says, you know, we have been the recipients of precious and very great promises, partakers of the divine nature because of what Christ has done. And so he grounds the people he's writing to in those grace-filled realities. And he says, therefore, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And he says, if these qualities, the ones he just mentioned, are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. And then he said something that just changed my life. He said, and if these qualities are not yours, if, if, if these qualities are not present, <laughs> so this person is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has been cleansed of his former sins. In other words, if you are a believer and you're not acting in accord with faith, virtue, godliness, self-control, You've forgotten that you've actually been forgiven of your sins, and that's meant to govern your, reality, uh, your identity. That's meant to govern how you live, right? Living out our identities produces the fruit of the Spirit, and this brings good to our neighbor and honors the Lord who saved us. And as an old hymn beautifully put it, if we're in the Spirit living, let us also walk therein, free from guilt and condemnation from the servitude of sin, by his faith alone I'm living, for with Christ to sin I died. I will bear abundant fruit that his name may be glorified. Never forget, guys, that we love because he first loved us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you again in just gratitude, Lord, knowing that you did not have to set your love upon us. You did not even have to give us the gospel to share with those who don't know Christ yet. And yet, Lord, we know that your grace is not meant to leave us where we are at, but actually is meant to go forth 
and, and actually bear fruit and produce good works that glorify you. But we understand that there's no amount of bearing fruit or good works that we would produce that would glorify you, that would ever make us right with you. It is only Christ and Christ alone. Lord, that, that the sufficient merit of Christ is our only grounding. It is our only hope at the end of the day. And for that, we praise you. For that, we thank you. And pray, Lord, that you are honored and blessed in this time. All this we pray, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.